Okay, great. I'm glad you're here. Um, there's, there's a bunch to talk about. I want to start talking about um, the, whole, uh, the whole event of, of Slavchad and his daughters and then hopefully use that as a springboard to discuss um, some issues about uh, women in Torah in general. Uh, I don't know if we'll get to that, uh, to, to that point. I, I, I hope to. Um, but I want to begin with um, a discussion of, of Slavchad and his daughters. So this is a, uh, is a very popular, popular event in the Torah. People love this, especially in today's age, because it, it's really, it's women rising up and sort of like being very heroic. And, and so that's, um, that's a good thing. And, and I want to get a little more deeply into it because there, there are nuances here that, that I think are uh, enlightening and, 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 and can be clarified. Um, it's important to know what it is that they actually did. Sometimes things can be politicized and then it's sort of like people are politicizing them to advance their own agendas. So let's just sort of like get into the, the story itself and see the nature of their actual heroism, and and uh, and take it from there. So, so Slavchad is a whole subject in and of himself. This was the father. Um, he had five daughters, and the five daughters were all righteous. And one of the ways that we know that they were all righteous—it's sort of an interesting uh, peek into how the Torah works—is is. is when, when names are listed in the Torah, the, the normal sort of, uh, the normal me- mechanism, unless there's an exception, but the normal mechanism is that, is that when you have a list of names, the people are listed in, in, in terms of uh, holiness. So whoever is named first, that's, that's, they're, they're the top notch, right? So then their names are listed in two separate sections in the Torah. One time it appears in one order, and the second time it appears in a different order. So now one would think, and we have examples of what this very thing that I'm about to say regarding the princes of the tribes and the event of the sin of the spies, where when you relist them in a different order, in a different place, that means that the top people fell, or the bottom people rose up, but there's a, there was a whole reset in terms of people's spiritual greatness. So now, how are we to understand the fact that the daughters of Slavchad are listed in a certain order in one section and an entirely different order in another section? So the commentators come to tell us something very interesting, which is that they didn't fall in holiness, but that they were all equally holy. And that's why they've been listed a different way the second time, so that you should understand that there was, it was nothing against the ones on the bottom of the list the first time. It's just you have to list them, you have to list them some way, but, but, but they were all equally holy. So we know that Slavchad's daughters were like superstars, okay? Not only that, but Rabbi Wolfson brings down something very interesting. You have uh, in, in one of the accounts of the event, certain times certain letters of the Torah are made smaller, and certain times certain letters of the Torah are made larger. So you have a large final nun with regard to uh, the, the, the whole event of Slavchad and, and they're asking Moshe to bring down the halacha. 
So Nun is Gematria 50, the numerical equivalent of 50. And we all know in terms of the cosmic map, there are sort of 50 levels, 50 gates. The top level is the Shar Hamishim, it's called, the 50th gate. And so, so the, the, deeper, the deeper mystics in Torah say that, that Slavchad's daughter had a share in this, in this Nun. In the, and that's why it's enlarged, this large Nun. So they were even really, really at the top. Okay. So now, let's talk about their father for a moment. Like I said, their father's name was Slavchad, and, and he is really one of the most amazing people in the whole Torah. And people don't talk about him too often, but you'll see in a moment what was so uh, startling about him. But let me put it in the context right now of Slavchad's daughters and the event of their inheriting land in Israel. Here's, here's what they said, and this is uh, in Parshas Pinchas, chapter 27, verse 3. They're now speaking before Moshe Rabbeinu, asking the halacha. They say, Our father died in the wilderness, but he was not among the assembly that was gathered against Hashem in the assembly of Korach. But he died of his own sin. And he had no sons. Alright? So, a few, a few points to make clear right there. They begin their, they begin their statement to Moshe by saying, uh, our father had no sons. Now, at this point, we don't know what the halacha is. In other words, the Jews are about to enter into the land of Israel, and strictly speaking, based on what we know at this point, sons inherit, but there's a big question mark about daughters. We don't know. And we haven't had this situation yet in the Torah, where a father has five children and they're all daughters. So do they get a share in the land at all? This is the big question. So they're coming to Moshe to ask. Now there's certain things that they have to make very, very clear to Moshe at the very beginning. The first thing that they, they make clear is, our father, our father died, he was executed, he was executed, and they are, um, they are very sort of like uh, mysterious about what, what exactly he did. He said he died from his own sin. Which sin exactly? So we're going to find out in a moment. The Gomorrah explains it. And we'll see that the circumstances behind that execution, that capital offense that he committed, are quite amazing. So let's hold on to that for a moment. But they make very, very clear from the outset, he wasn't among those people who were in Korach's assembly. If you remember, Korach was the one who led a rebellion against Moshe Rabbeinu. And um, Korach is a complicated subject in itself, but basically, basically he was saying that, that Moshe, you're not the legitimate voice of Hashem. So this, you know, and then of course the earth opened up in a miraculous way and swallowed him and all of his followers. So they make very clear where our father was not part of the assembly that challenged your authenticity. Meaning to say, when we, when we, his daughters, are asking you this question, Moshe, we are not challenging you at all. We just want clarity. We just want clarity, that's all. Okay, so very important, this preamble. Now, how do they begin their request? 
And I think we'll see, we'll discuss this as this goes on, but we'll see that their very statement about the inheritance is very, very interestingly phrased. It's two more, two more verses. Here, here's the main course right now. Why should the name of our father be omitted from his family because he had no son? In other words, it, it seems that we're about to enter into the land of Israel, and all five of his daughters are not going to get an inheritance, which means the legacy of our father is going to be uprooted, and our father's ongoing sort of lineage, destiny, presence among the Jewish people is going to be erased. Why should that be the fate of our father? Okay, then they said, give us a possession among our father's brothers. So, so let it come through us. And then it says, and Moshe brought their claim before Hashem. That in itself is amazing and we have to understand it. Why did Moshe know the halacha or he didn't know the halacha? He, he now has to ask Hashem, okay, what happens when you've got a, a father and five daughters? What, do they get a share? Do they not get a share? Okay, so it's, it's not too often that it says that Moshe's asked a question and he has to ask Hashem. That's, 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 that's big news. Okay. So now, let's figure out what happened with Slavchad. Who was Slavchad? What was his sin? Why did he die? Now listen to this. The decree of 40 years of wandering in the desert had just come down. So you have the sin of the spies. An entire generation is being told right now, you're not going to make it into the land of Israel. You're going to die in the desert. So, Slavchad, so now there's like a lot of buzz among the Jewish people at that time. And the buzz is, do we have to keep the Torah at all? We're dwelling outside the land of Israel. The Torah really, ideally, I mean, whether you live in the land of Israel or you don't live in the land of Israel, we have to keep the mitzvahs. However, at that time, all of this was brand new. And their perception was, that we're going into the land of Israel, and that's the primary place of keeping the mitzvahs, which is also true. So they're thinking, maybe we don't have to keep the mitzvahs in the desert. So along comes Slavchad, and he does this outrageous thing. You ready? He deliberately violates a capital offense so that he will be executed in order to clarify that the Torah still has to be kept outside the land of Israel. He gathers sticks on Shabbos, which is carrying, because there was no Eruv, so he publicly, intentionally, breaks Shabbos, which everyone had been taught at that point, is a capital offense, so that he will be executed, so that everyone will see in that generation, and for all time, not just the preciousness of Shabbos, but then and there, that the laws and the mitzvahs are, are operative even outside of the land. That's quite a personality, wouldn't you say? I mean, that's, that's, that, that's very interesting. That's a very interesting thing to do. So, Slavchad literally gave his life in order for people to understand the preciousness of the mitzvahs. 
Okay. So now, now, now look how look how poetic it is the flow of generations and people's destinies and what people have to reveal in terms of their own life in this world. Their father is the one we just said who who showed that even outside of the land of Israel, we have to keep the Torah. And now his daughters are now coming up to show the preciousness of the inheritance of the land itself. Do you see this? these bookend ideas, how they complement each other? One shows the preciousness of the Torah outside of the land. The other shows the importance of receiving the land itself. Very complementary. Okay. So now... Now we have to figure out another concept, which is, which is a really kind of like a counterintuitive, interesting idea, which is that it says the normal way that one inherits something is the parent gives over to the child. That would be the, the dictionary definition of inheritance. The parent gives to the child. Okay. But it says, interestingly, that when it comes to receiving the land of Israel, the parents inherited from the children. So, how does that work? And I'm going to give you a a certain kind of mathematical kind of formula in a moment that's, that's kind of fun, okay? Unless you hate math. In which case, I'll say it quickly. (laughs) So, 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 here it is. The generation that left Egypt was promised a share in the land. Now what do we just say? Because of the sin of the spies, this generation wasn't going to make it into the land. But their children were going to make it into the land. Therefore, the children were going to receive the land. But the children received the land on behalf of the parents. In other words, the parents... Hashem kept His promise. The parents still got the land, but they received it through the children because they weren't alive to receive it. Okay, so now let's figure out how it happened in reality. Okay, you ready? Put on your, put on your, your visors. <laughs> Here, here's how it worked. Imagine you have two brothers. Okay? One brother has one child. The other brother has nine sons. Okay? So what happened was, since those two brothers were no longer alive, what you had alive was ten children. One from one father, nine from the other father. Everyone with me so far? So you add up nine and one, and you get ten. Now what happens is, remember we said, the parents inherited from the children. So now what happened was, now you have ten shares, because one child plus nine children equal ten. Now you have two two fathers. So those ten shares were now divided in half. One father got five shares, and the other father got the other five shares. Okay, now how did the children inherit? Now the children now inherit from the fathers. Okay? So that means that that one child... Got, gets five shares 
And the other nine sons divide up five shares. Okay? I'll say it quickly one more time. Two fathers. One father has one, sh- one, one son, and the other father has nine sons. You add up all the shares of the children, that's ten. Since there are two fathers, you split it in half, five and five. One father has one son, so his five shares all go to that one son. The other father has five shares. Since he has nine children, those five shares go and are divided among the nine children. So in this way, the fathers actually inherited from the children. And then it flipped back, and the children inherited from the fathers. Okay, so this returns us back to the question of Slavchat. What's going to happen to these super holy righteous women? You have five daughters, no sons. Do they get cut out completely? Okay, so, so in, their, in their righteousness, they come before Moshe. And here's something that I want to zero in on. Because I think that, you know, in today's day and age, you see... You see, and this is where this is where it gets a little bit tricky. One has to have with Torah very, very pure motives, very pure motives. So we have to see what the daughters of Slavchad, who were very great, actually did. And and the reason why I'm making this point is because in in sort of like a in a in a well-intentioned but I think slightly misguided way. Sometimes this issue becomes politicized and it becomes sort of like this symbol of sort of like, you know, feminist revolt or something like this. And I don't think that it's really coming from that place. I think it's coming from a place of wholeness and righteousness and purity. And everyone is acting in a beautiful way. And so I just want to make sure that we understand what it is that they actually did. And then we can, we can understand the consequences afterwards, as opposed to starting with a political agenda and trying to pin it on them. That, 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 that I, I think, does them a disservice. Okay, so, so what they said was, again, in their righteousness, here's how they phrased it. Why should the name of our father be wiped out? In other words, they didn't ask at that moment we are women. We deserve the land. Don't abuse us. They, they didn't say that. They said, why should our father, who is promised the land as part of the generation that left Egypt, why should he be cut out? You made him a promise. He gets the land. Okay, so he had all daughters. So what? So because of that, our father should get cut out? So, so now, if you, if, you, if you look at the flow of the way that it's written in the Torah, they then say, give us a possession among our father's brothers. So, <clears throat> so why did they ask at all? And the Gemara says that they loved the land of Israel. They also loved the land of Israel. I don't, want to, I don't want to overly simplify who they were and what their motivations were. 
they also loved the land of Israel, and they themselves also wanted a portion of the land of Israel. But the way they structured their request or their question was really about their father. So both things are going on at the same time. And, um, and you know what's kind of interesting is, it says in the Gomorrah in another place, that someone who, who wants something, and they know someone else who wants something, if they pray that that other person should receive the thing first, they receive it first. And you know, they never, when they, when they, when that's, and that's a big principle, it's, it's all over the Chumash, you know, praying, praying for all sorts of things, health, parnosa, marriage, children, all, all sorts of things, that, that one should accustom themselves to pray for someone else who has that need first. But I never see Slavchad's daughters uh, as an example of that principle. And yet you see here, it's, a, it's really a perfect example of the principle, because they ask on behalf of their father first, and they receive, they're the ones who receive. Okay, so, so anyway, let's go a little bit more into this. So, Moshe then asks Hashem. So, it would seem that the, it just in the simplicity of the words of the Torah there, Moshe did not, that this was such a complex question, that Moshe didn't, that he didn't know the answer to the question. Right? I mean, that would seem the simplicity of it. Okay. So, so, uh, so now, I'm going to give you an answer from the Shalah. We have a descendant of the Shalah here. <laughs> so, the Shalah HaKodesh, you know, there aren't that many Torah commentaries who have HaKodesh means the Holy One, basically, attached to their, na- to their name. The Shalah is one of those who does. The Shalah HaKodesh says the following. Don't think that Moshe didn't know the answer to the question already. <laughs> he knew the answer to the question. He knew. He knew. He knew that they have a share in the land already. Alright? So why then did he say, I want to ask Hashem? Okay, so now listen to this. Something very, very interesting. It says that um, it says that if you're a judge and you're bribed at all, then you can't judge the, the situation clearly. A, a, a bribed judge has to remove himself. And in fact, there's a, a famous story, I don't know the name of the rabbi uh, at, at this moment, but he was on a, a based din, he was judging a, a, halach, a, a halachic dispute among a couple of people, and he couldn't get clarity, and he couldn't get clarity, and he didn't understand, because it, just intellectually, it didn't seem to be that hard a question that he had been asked. And yet, he, 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 he could not figure it out. And then he went back to his study, and he, he looked in his pocket. I guess he had left his jacket on his chair or something like this. And in his pocket, one of the litigants had put a bribe in his pocket. So how far does it go that a bribe judge can't see clearly? Even a person who doesn't even know that they're being bribed, if it had been done with, even without his knowledge, somehow it, it clogs up the spiritual pipes. And, and it impacted him. And, and he saw that this was the reason. Now, 
according to the Shalah, this same thing, sort of like, could have happened to Moshe Rabbeinu. And I'll explain. If you remember, they begin their request by saying, our father was not involved with Korach. Our father was not among those people who questioned your authority. Well, according to the Shalah, at that moment, they bribed Moshe a little bit. Because they gave him a big compliment. And they said, they said to him, you know something? We're on your side. <laughs> we're one of your people. Now, now that you know we're one of your people, we have a question. So Moshe was afraid that he might get it a little bit off. So he removed himself as the judge in this case and said, you know something? I'll ask Hashem and you'll hear it straight from Hashem and then you'll know the clarity of this 100%. And you know, I want to add one, one thought to this on my own. It's just sort of a variation of what I just told you. Which is that had Moshe after they publicly said, our father was not with Korach, and Moshe decided in their favor, it, it may have seemed to, the, seemed to the people that Moshe was, had a political agenda. In other words, not just that his, his insight was, was tarnished, not just that his insight was tarnished by a potential bribe, but that the people may have misconstrued his decision as politics. Oh, you know something? They weren't with Korach, so they get political patronage. So he's giving them the good stuff. And so the integrity of the halacha may have been tarnished as well for that reason. So, so he removes himself from the thing. Now, here's the next point, which is also something that we can take with us in a very practical way in our own life. If you want to say that this halacha was known, and it was known by Moshe, and that daughters could inherit, and that was 100% true from the get-go, from the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai, and there was never really a question about this, and furthermore, that the Torah would have gone on to explain that women get a share as well in this situation, and that there's really no questions here, then... Why does the halacha come down in this way? Why does it seem that Slavchad's daughters were really, you know, kind of like, kind of like creating an event that basically we learn would have happened anyway? The transmission of this knowledge. And now we get a very important principle in terms of our own lives and... and uh, and our own personal, how we guide our own destinies. Which is, the Gomorrah says that good news gets to be revealed through good people and bad news gets to be revealed <laughs> through bad people. Okay? Good things come through good people, bad tidings come through bad people. This is, a, this is a very interesting thing. Because they loved the land, and because they loved their father, they merited that, that it came through them. 
And that's true for us in our own lives as well. We get to merit if we really... You see, basically, basically the destiny of the world is set. At a certain point, you know, as we always say, and, and as it's sort of my theme song, you know, if I, if I probably have, only have one thought to share to a person, it would be this thought, um, which is that the world is still in the process of being created, if you see injustice around you, it's because the world is not done yet. It's not finished yet. This is our job. This is our privilege. That through the mitzvot, we get to finish the world as partners with God. So, so, but the destiny of the world is set. The world will reach its level of perfection. That's going to happen. You know? But, you know, like they say in all the cop shows, we can do this the hard way or we can do this the easy way. You know, <laughs> it can be through the apocalypse or it could be through, you know, a rabbi riding on a donkey, you know, kind of coming to Jerusalem and, you know, kind of saying, OK, let's uh, <laughs> let's start building the base of Migdash. You know, it can come in based on the level of our merit. And so based on the level of our love and our desire and our passion, certain things will come through us into the world. We, we, we you know, you know. I, I'll tell you something. I've, uh, I've worked in, uh, you know, television for many years, and sometimes, uh, sometimes there's something which becomes very sort of uh, political, and it's a very sensitive which is sometimes one actor has a, uh, a very good line, like a very good joke, and it's, you know, in their speech. And you want to take that line and give it to another actor. <laughs> and that's very tricky, because, you know, everyone wants to have the great line or the great joke or the big laugh or the important thing. And if you take a line from someone and you give it to someone else, you have to be very, very careful, you know? So, so to speak, the dialogue has been written, so to speak, but the names haven't necessarily been assigned yet. We get, we get, again, through like Slavchad's daughters, who were so holy and righteous, because they had this strong desire, the words of the Torah, this halacha came through them. And it was revealed through them and because of them. And that's a big deal. It's a big deal because if they hadn't done that, thousands of years later, we, we wouldn't be sitting talking about them today in Los Angeles. Right? That's for sure. You know? So they, they made their destiny forever. Forever and ever and ever and ever. It's awesome, actually. Um, so... So I want to touch on, I want to just expand the topic a little bit more and just share some, some thoughts. And, you know, this is just me talking personally, but, but this, is, this is my level of understanding and I just want to share it with you, which is about men and women in the Torah in general. And, um, you know, we live today in a Western society, in a very uh, egalitarian society, uh, thank God, and, um, and, you know, the way 
the way uh, justice is perceived in contemporary society is equal rights. Everything has to be equal, and to the extent that it's not equal, then it's unjust or criminal or wicked or something like this. So when people in contemporary society realize they start to get in touch with their own soul and they want to connect with the Torah and they want to look into the Torah and understand what it says about me, what it says about my life and everything like that, well, they, they encounter something quite interesting, which is that there are many mitzvahs, many, many mitzvahs, which a man has to do, which a woman, which a woman does not have to do. And through the lens of Western society, of, of America or whatever it is, this is sort of like perceived as a great strike against women, a, 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 almost a misogynist uh, point of view, chas v'shalom, God forbid, and that there's something like truly out of whack going on over here. So how do you address it? How do you understand it? Well, well, I'd like to say how I address it and how I understand it. <laughs> now that we've asked the question, which you've all been in touch with anyway, but, but I think that there is a fundamental misconception with the question itself. Naturally, we see it through contemporary eyes because this is, we're children of this age. So, so the questions themselves are not wrong. They're understandable and inevitable even. But how we actually understand it is, is very important. And we have to understand that man and woman are, are equal before God 10,000%, 10 million percent. They're equally, man and woman are equally God's children. You know, a billion percent. To think otherwise would be crazy, actually. It, it, would, it would be wrong, certainly, but beyond wrong. It would, it would show such a fundamental lack of understanding of God that He would create one gender who He favors and one gender who He doesn't favor. It's just, the, the, the very premise of that is, is, is somewhat ridiculous. Now, I happen to be of the opinion, and I know there, there are schools of political correctness which would challenge what I'm about to say, but I would challenge them back. <laughs> and that is that I believe very strongly that men and women, while both human beings and both equal before God, are different. Men and women are different. And there are people who will go to the grave saying, men and women are exactly the same. I mean, just look at them physically. They're obviously not exactly the same. And the outside is, is a reflection of something that's going on inside as well. It doesn't mean one is better than the other. They just aren't the same. Men and women are not the same. They're both separate, equally wonderful, beautiful, holy creations, but they're different creations. They're two parts of a whole, that's for sure, but they're different from each other. As such, as such, men and women have different needs. And so that is the answer in understanding why it is that men have certain mitzvahs and women have certain mitzvahs. Because these mitzvahs are specifically geared to their souls in order to uplift 
and to rectify and perfect their souls. So let me put it in a more sort of humorous way. If the mitzvahs are coming to rectify one's souls, that means the the, the mitzvahs are sort of like medicine. Okay? So now imagine I'm taking uh, Lipitor for high cholesterol. And then someone comes up to me who has perfectly fine cholesterol and says, you're taking Lipitor and I'm not taking Lipitor. (laughs) There's a great injustice going on. You you have to check your blood sugar every single day for diabetes, and I don't? How could that be? Criminal forces are at work. Do you understand how absurd this is? So, there are certain things one should know, certain mitzvahs that... that, uh, that women are not uh, commanded to do, but can do if they want. And then you have to sort of like look into that more deeply, like what that means exactly and uh, under what circumstances and things like that. It doesn't mean that they're forbidden from doing many of these things. It's just that they're not commanded to do many of these things because it's not ultimately necessary for the rectification of their souls. And that's what it is. Now I want to address another issue in this realm of conversation, which is the mechitza. The mechitza is that, um, that separation between men and women during prayer. And again, the way this has been applied, you know, one of the first things that I learned uh, when I started studying Torah uh, seriously was from uh, Schwartz, Rabbi Shlomo Schwartz, and, and he said to me, a, a great byword which you should write down or try to remember and tell people, which is, don't confuse Jews with Judaism. <laughs> you know, <laughs> meaning to say that Jews often, um, unfortunately, misapply or are not the greatest practitioners of what the Torah is trying to get across. And, and this is a very unfortunate occurrence because most people only know Judaism through Jews. So, and yet, sometimes the two are very divergent, unfortunately. Okay, so now, you certainly have shuls, synagogues, where women are put in a disrespectful place, where the mechitza is, is apportioned, the room is apportioned in such a way where the women would naturally feel as though they're being shunted aside. And that's unfortunate. But that has nothing to do with the idea of mechitza in general. The, the idea of mechitza is that, you know something? The word tefillah, which means prayer, is really, the essence is translated as avodah shebelev, which means work of the heart. What that means is that when you show up to shul to pray, that's a work session. You're going to work. So, so there are people who say, and I understand where this is coming from, but I think it's misguided. They say, you know something? When I go to synagogue, this is family time. This is the time when I want to sit next to my husband and for us to share together this service. And I would say back to them, that's the other 23 hours of the day. 
This is a work session that you're going to right now. You have to go to an environment that's optimally designed for you to be able to focus on God at that moment and to pray for the perfection of the world and for your personal needs. That, that's what you're doing when you go to shul. So if I'm sitting next to a woman and I'm, you know, thinking about what she's thinking about me and I'm thinking about how I'm smelling or how she's smelling or whatever, the, whatever it is, you know, and, you know, I, I'm, I'm not thinking about God at that moment. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, <laughs> th- th- that just makes sense to me. That's not a, I don't think I'm saying anything controversial here. I think I'm just clarifying what it is. Now, the, 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 the happy minion where, where we daven, I really like the mechitza there. It's down the middle. That seems to me very appropriate. Now, many synagogues were constructed, and they spent huge amounts of money constructing these things during the 1950s or the 1940s or the turn of the century, or whatever it is, where they didn't have this level of sensitivity and this consciousness. And so it's, it sort of is what it is in those places, you know? I mean, unless you want to donate a large sum of money and have them, you know, re, redesign the shul, you know, which is not a small thing. But in, in, in other places where it can be done more simply, it seems to me that just putting the mechitza down the middle of the shul makes perfect sense. It serves the purpose of separating men and women so that they can focus on what they're supposed to be doing at that moment. And it's a very respectful acknowledgement of the equality of men and women before God. So, so I, think that that's, I think that that's an important point. By the way, you should know that, there's, that there are some nuances here. There's an opinion, <clears throat> I think there are some people who don't necessarily agree with this, but in, 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 in halacha, in orthodox understanding of, of Torah, this opinion absolutely does exist, which is that that mechitza can be 100% clear. It just has to be, it just has to be there. And there's another thing, which is more accepted than that even, which is that the women can see the men. It's the men that can't see the women. Because anyone who is a man or a woman, <laughs> hopefully that includes all of us, knows that men are more easily distracted by women than women are by men, for the most part, in general. So they, they actually can see the men. It's, it's the men that really need that, 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 that increased level of focus because they're more easily distracted. Um, so, so just to take it another step, you know, remember we, we began by saying that, uh, that in some instances, in some instances, when you have something ordered, that thing that goes first, right, is, 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 is the top, right? But sometimes that thing that goes last is the top because you're building Okay, so for instance, no one who has an appreciation of of Torah would ever say that because ants were created before man was created, that therefore ants have greater stature before God than a man does. No one, no one would say that. 
So that would be an instance of how you have a different paradigm where it builds in terms of holiness, that the later thing is more holy than the thing that came before it. Well, I would ask you this, given that, which is the correct paradigm here, what came as the culmination, man or woman? Well, man was created first, and then the last was woman who was created, which means that woman is is sort of like if you're if you're going upwards, then that's the final crescendo in terms of the creation of beings, and then you have to understand that. Well, then you would say, okay, so then woman was the last thing that was created, but just an important P.S. to that teaching is that that's not the case. The very last thing that was created was Shabbos. You know, if you imagine the time-space continuum as a carpet being rolled out, a lot of people think, okay, well then there are seven days. You roll out seven days and the last portion there is Shabbos. That would, that's a misunderstanding of the depth of Shabbos. You have six days and the seventh day is a, a new creation. Shabbos is a separate creation. And in fact, I'll end on this teaching, something really kind of uh, wild that I just learned uh, from the B'nai Yisachar, one of the great Hasidic Rebbe's, says, what is the definition of Shabbos? So the Zohar says the definition of Shabbos is it's a name of God. Okay? Shabbos is one of the names of God. Now, the gematria, the numerical equivalent of Shabbos, is 702. Now listen to this. We know that God created the world through the letters of the Aleph base. Now there are 27 letters. 22 normal letters and 5 final letters. There are five, 5 of the 22 letters have a special form if they come at the end of the word. So that's 27 letters in total. Okay? So since since each letter has within it the the is since each letter is saturated with godliness and that's another way of saying that is that each letter contains an aspect of the yudke babke right the holiest name of hashem and the numerical equivalent of the of the yudke babke is 26 and we just said we have 27 letters well Guess what? 27 times 26 is 702, which spells out Shabbos. So, so it's, uh, so we're swimming in it. Okay, have a good week.